Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We're ready, no doubt. Paul would have found some ridiculous bit of wittering to have stuck on the front of the podcast when it goes out. Hello, everyone. This is Colin Schindler, welcoming you back to another edition of the new, improved Football Ruined My Life, now with the extra miracle ingredient of Factor 428Y, which makes your listening experience a little less like sticking your head in a bucket. Today, as befits John Holmes, Patrick Barclay and me, three old men creaking their way agonisingly towards death and oblivion, we're going to be talking about retirement. Something no doubt many of you out there are already shouting we should all have embraced many years ago. And yet, although we've probably slowed down a bit, well, a lot, if I'm being really honest, we're still doing some version of the jobs we've done for most of our working lives. And we'll no doubt continue to do so as long as someone is interested in what we do and is prepared to offer us a 10 bob note to keep doing it. For footballers, as for all athletes, retirement is a very different proposition. Jimmy Anderson is 41 years old, but only now is old age catching up with England's most successful test match bowler. Stanley Matthews, of course, continued to play football at the top level until he was 50. But these men are freakish in their longevity. By and large, there is little that players do in their 30s that they haven't done better in their 20s. By the age of 31 or 32, there are questions being asked of most players as to how long they can continue to play on for, even if the answer is another four or five years. Under Ferguson, Manchester United had a policy of not offering anything longer than a one-year contract to any player over 30. In times past, players continued to play even as they knew perfectly well that the sands of time were running out because they had left school at 15 or 16, and frankly, they had no savings to speak of and were rarely fitted for any other occupation. John, you were one of the first agents to arrange pensions for your clients. What was your experience of what happened to players as they approached retirement when you first started out on the game? Well, as it were. (laughs) Well, clearly, I had a very good time on the game. No. (laughs) And preserved your amateur status, I might Yeah. Um... One thing, of course, that has changed, because players earn a lot, lot more money now, a lot of them, if they're careful, they needn't ever work again. When I started, players pretty constantly worried about what would happen to them when they were finished. But the summit of their expectations at that point was to own a pub, to own a post office, a news agent. That was where they were going to be. And often you found these players in local pubs, in post offices, in news agents and so on. And they also toddled along to the game on Saturday, unless that is, of course, that they could find a job as a manager or a coach, you know, something around the club. But of course, they were acutely aware that there's only one manager for a squad of 18, 20 players. So They knew in many ways that wasn't going to work. The divorce rate amongst retired footballers at that point was frightening. Of 
course, they were earning decent wages at that point. But it's a bit of an adaptation of McCorberism, really. You're on an income of, let's say, in those days, they were on an income of 75 grand. To go back to being on an income of 20 grand or something, it was a dreadful shock and very, very difficult for them. And that put pressure on the marriage, the difference in terms of working style. You know, being a footballer, you went in in the morning, then you went home. And there were, of course, the temptations if you just worked half a day even if it was fairly hard physically, were to sit, watch the TV, watch the racing on TV. And so many of them, of course, as we know, had problems with gambling and so on and so on. Now, it's a question if they hang on to money, yes, they can look after themselves for the rest of their life. But nevertheless, the income drops. Nevertheless, they have to manage it particularly well. And they also have to fill their time and not get caught by scam artists or people who encourage them to invest in dubious schemes and so on. So it's not all wonderful now. And they lose, of course, that wonderful thrill of playing the game. And they've got 40, 50 years of their life to live. How do they fill that time? You can't play golf every day, all the time. Paddy, did you find in your meeting of footballers that the dawning realisation of the inevitability of retirement and all the things John's just talked about started to have an impact on players when they got past 30? Or were many of them simply not prepared to even think about it? It was too awful to contemplate, so they didn't. Yeah, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they went into the media, but of course not in a Gary Lineker sort of way. I mean, I can remember Tommy Smith when he retired after a very distinguished career with Liverpool. He would do co-commentary for one of the local radio stations. But we aren't talking Gary Neville wages or Jamie Carragher wages or Micah Richards wages or certainly not Alex Scott wages. But they they seemed reasonably happy with that and with low-level coaching jobs. Ray Clemens, for example, combined broadcasting with goalkeeping coaching. And they did seem, most of them, reasonably happy with that. But there again, you never heard the sad cases, the people who went off the rails, they rented off the rails privately and you didn't hear a lot about it. Kenny Sansom is one, a very distinguished attacking fullback who could not cope with life after. I'm thinking of Paul Canneville as well. In a way, pre-retirement was tough for him because he suffered from racism and was badly affected by it, unlike some players who seemed to rise above racism. But Canafield, for one reason or another, couldn't, and nor should he have had to, of course. You know, like everything else, it's a bit of a mixed bag. But from what I know, the number of players whose lives went catastrophically off the rails would be small but significant rather than an epidemic. John, what are clubs... I mean, they didn't used to take any steps at all to help their players. I'm very well aware of that. But I think the culture's changed and there are steps that can be taken to put in place for players to adapt to retirement now. Yeah, the financial services industry, of course, recognises it. I mean, they're in the business to make money. So, of course, footballers weren't a great big market when I started because they didn't earn that much money. Therefore, it wasn't like looking after chief executives and people whose earnings would go on for a long time. Footballers' main aspirations at that point when I started were get a house and put some money away for retirement, get enough money together to buy the pub or the uh, news agents or whatever. That has altered significantly now. 
but it's more difficult because the more amount of money there are, the more hangers-on are attracted to footballers. And, of course, there are still now a lot of cases of footballers being swindled. You know, people put up dubious tax schemes, all that sort of thing. And they do get into problems. And as I say, your income going down on whatever level you are, it's difficult. It's difficult to cope with the difference in lifestyle. Footballers' lives are pretty regimented and the club does everything for you. You turn up at training, you go home from training, you turn up for the match and you go home from the match. And if you go abroad, they organise it. I remember quite early on, one fairly young player at Leicester, they went on a trip. I think it was to the Footballer of the Year dinner, the PFA do early on, and they went to a London hotel. And as they were going down, this player said to a colleague of his, when you go to a hotel, how do you know what room you're in? And the player said, what do you mean? You check in. And he said, uh, check in. Because he'd never been to a hotel before he started playing for football. And when you went with a football club, they did the check-in. You had a key thrust in your hand, and that was your room. And he had no idea of how you knew what room you were in. They were a protected sort of species. And going out into the real world was quite difficult. They've got more sophisticated, clearly, as Mm. time goes on. But I think, as a sportsman, let's imagine you're 35, 36 you decide to finish because your body can't take it any longer. You know that for the rest of your lifetime, unless you're very lucky, those are the biggest thrills that you will ever have, and it's gone. Mm. Gary Lineker said to me that he could never actually replace the thrill of scoring a goal. He didn't miss training, he didn't actually miss playing, but he did actually miss scoring goals. And then he was fortunate in that what he discovered was the nearest thing to scoring a goal he got was when faced with a camera and the red light went on and he knew he was blithe. And that sort of replaced that thrill. Now, a lot of players don't get that. You know, they're very wealthy and they go to a golf course and they play quite well, but they know they're not actually absolute tops at it. It's not the same. And I think the... Feeling that your life is over is difficult. I remember when Peter Shilton was transferred to Southampton from Derby. The transfer went on for a bit of time and Laurie McMenemy and I were talking in a corner at one point and Big Laurie said to me, what are you going to do with him when he wants to finish? Because goalkeeping was his life, you know. And I said, well, I thought we could come to some arrangement there. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well... In his last game, I think we need someone to kick him very hard right on the temple. (laughs) And he could go off to the approbation of the crowd. I think Peter really, really struggled when he finished, as we know, gambling and, and so on. And he's now found a sort of restitution in becoming an advocate for banning gambling from sport. But, of course, he struggled for a long, long time to find a new role. He wanted to play on forever and ever. He played a thousand league games, but eventually he knew it had to finish because no one would pay him to play anymore. Do you think players discuss this in the dressing room? I mean, presumably there's a range of ages. So there's late teenagers, early 20s, all the way through to, to early mid-30s. But as you get over 30, which when it's looming into sight, 
players might be quite careful about releasing the information about how much they earn to another player in the dressing room. But would they also admit to that feeling of anxiety when they see impending retirement? Is it a demasculating event or is it something that can be shared? I think it depends on the era. I remember Ryan Giggs saying that, as you know, he had quite an Indian summer of a career where he ended up playing equally well in a variety of positions and, you know, probably playing as many games as he had when he was 21 for Manchester United. And he said he'd never enjoyed playing remotely as much as this. Because when you can see the finishing line, he said, Mm. it gives you an extra sensation. It gives an extra dimension to every experience. Just seeing that finishing line made him grateful for every minute that he was on the park. A player from, say, a different era would have been terrified of the finishing line. But Ryan Giggs had amassed enough money to make himself secure for the rest of his life, I presume. I'm not his bank manager, but I think it's very different. It depends on the player's circumstances. I mean, to give a bit of context of this, Colin, I'd like to just dwell a little on the story of Fred Bullock. Now, you may not be aware of Fred Bullock in the annals of professional football. I wasn't until I studied the life of Herbert Chapman for a biography I wrote. And I came across Fred Bullock and he haunts me. It may be an extreme case, and it's from a century ago. Huddersfield Town, he wasn't from Huddersfield, but he certainly became a legend, an icon, call it what you will, in Huddersfield, because Huddersfield Town were going out of business. The family that owned them at the time was proposing to merge them with a newly formed club by the name of Leeds United and take them 20 miles up the road to Leeds. The players refused to accept this, and led by Bullock, who was the captain, they went round every street corner in Huddersfield pleading for, I suppose, an early uh, instance of crowdfunding. They were pleading with people to rally round the club. They did survive. They had a great cup run where this club that had been going out of business because the crowds refused obstinately to go above two or 3,000 in what was a rugby league town. Suddenly, they were playing in the FA Cup in front of 50,000 setting new records. And eventually Herbert Chapman came initially as assistant manager and then as manager and the rest is definitely history because they won a hat-trick of first division titles. But Fred, he won one international cap for England, but he was already in the twilight of his career. And Chapman bought a left-back. Fred was a left-back. He bought a lad called Sam Wadsworth, who was a great signing, actually. Bought him for 1,500 quid, and he went on to Captain England. And Wadsworth, towards the end of the same season in which Fred Bullock got his only England cap, Wadsworth was the first team left back. Bullock was left out. And it was really Chapman's first really hard, nasty decision as a manager at Huddersfield. Anyway, Fred Bullock took a pub at the Slubber's Arms in Huddersfield, And that seemed to be a reasonable ending for a a player who'd had a decent career before succumbing to injury and age. He, of course, had been to the First World War. And Frank Buckley, another great name in football, who had enlisted in the football battalion in the First World War, later estimated that 500 of its 600 members were dead by the start of the early 30s. In Fred Bullock's case, one, well, it was a a general election day. In the slubber's arms, his wife, Maud, found him. 
Beside him was a beer bottle in which Maud had kept cleaning fluid and the funeral was attended by Chapman and the entire squad. I think when you look at all the factors that made retirement an impossible load to bear for Fred Bullock, I suppose ones who just got bored or couldn't cope in other ways in modern eras, you've just got to measure it against Fred Bullock for my money. I think there's truth in that with our generation and I'm talking as under 80s, we haven't been involved in the wars. Our fathers almost certainly were, and our grandfathers were possibly involved in the First World War. Yes. And, of course, we've talked about some of the great managers and how some of their greatness, we think, came from their experiences during the war. For players, stepping down, to me, it is this issue that there you are, the idol of the crowd and people chasing you in the street and autographs and all that sort of stuff, you go from that to, in a few years' time, didn't you used to be whoever? Yes. You know, the sad statement. Mental health, we are now more aware of that, of course. It's still men are not very good at seeking assistance for mental health. In a lot of sportsmen, the pressure has gone up. It's yes. not just from the local crowd and the local community now. It's because their indiscretions are on TV. They're pursued by the newspapers. And there's nothing we know that the newspapers like better than a disgrace of a footballer yes. sort of story. Yes, there are ways of coping that and their availability of help is still there. But men aren't very good at that, as we know. And we still get a number of tragedies of those who really can't cope once all the things they took for granted are taken away from them. Is it true that the better the footballer then, what you're saying seems seems to me, the harder it is? So in other words, is it easier to retire if you're playing for Rochdale than it is if you're playing for Manchester United? Well, there's the money factor. The chances are now, if you've played for Manchester United, you're going to earn more money. If you're going to play for Rochdale, no, you won't. But if you were playing for Manchester United 30, 40 years ago, you were also within a group of people who were local celebrities. And therefore, there was access to, hopefully, some people to help you on your way. Did the clubs do a lot? No, they didn't actually do a lot. They were happy enough to have them as players, but they actually didn't care much once these guys had gone. Yeah, they were happy enough to patronise them up to an extent, but there was that view. These people weren't very bright. They earned a few quid and they've wasted it. They've gone back to type. I think there were a lot more problems, for instance, with other sports like rugby. When rugby went professional, they didn't earn as much money, but the physical pounding they took in rugby as a professional game, they really took a pounding. Now we're finding out lots of issues with Alzheimer's and dementia. And of course, football's not exempt from that. I go to funerals of old footballers quite often. And the talk at those funerals amongst the other players is of dementia and the worry they have. I'm friendly with a couple of them and they they do say to me, am I all right, John? There's a guy, I won't mention his name because it would be embarrassing. I met him, I'd known him when he was a player and I went over and started chatting to him. 
And he looked at me after a second and he went, Shilton's man, Shilton's man, John Holmes. Mm. And I said, yeah, that's right. Sorry, I should have introduced myself. And he was so pleased. That was sort of proof to him mm. that his brain was still working yes. and it was going. And yes. of course, I learned a year later that he had, in fact, got yeah. dementia. Yeah. And of course, the sad thing was he knew he was getting it. Yes. And the fear of dementia amongst older players now, they worry about it. Would it stop them when they were younger, heading the ball, and if they were tall, doing it? Of course it wouldn't. You know, the kids nowadays, if they were told by the coach, you're good in the air, son, you play centre-back, and you've got to win this ball in the air, that ball in there, they'll still do it. And I think that the sport needs to address that as an issue. Are they serious about it? Up to a point. We're talking in the dark. I mean, I know a player, Ian Muir, who played for Arsenal Man United after beginning his career with great distinction at Dundee. And he must have headed countless heavy balls in his life. And he's well into his 80s now. And he's certainly a lot brighter than me, but he's as bright as any teenager. We just don't know enough. And that in itself is a bit of a scandal to know what we should do to protect people. In the meantime, by the way, I've got very strong views on this. Nobody agrees with it. But I think if we're going to bring in laws to stop children heading balls, because we're not sure whether it's causing them serious injury or not, then we should do the bloody same for adults and ban heading full stop from the game. If there's any doubt, ban it. That came in, of course, you're talking about a totally different game. I think it's a very difficult call, but if you're talking about how do footballers, what do they talk about, once they get beyond retirement age, I tell you, their main topic is worrying about dementia. Yeah, I've noticed that. All right, well, let me shift it slightly from that kind of physical injury to something not as bad, but equally devastating to the player mentally, which is the, the, the moment, I mean, I remember reading Danny Blanchflower saying that he knew he had to retire when he missed a tackle. Well, it was not this much he missed it, he arrived late. He was a fraction late, and he knew that last year he would have made that tackle. There is a moment when a player, if he's bright enough or able to face the reality of it, knows that his powers are diminishing. So my next question is the same sort of thing. How reluctant or how okay are players to accept the physical diminution, because the moment they say to the coach, something's going wrong, I'm not getting there as fast as I can, he's actually saying, please transfer me to a lower division because I can't do it anymore. It's only going to get worse. So it's a terrible admission of defeat. It's an emasculation as well, yes, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Those sort of feelings are not unknown to those of, you know, we're all in our 70s now yeah. and we have no moments where we've gone, I can't do that anymore. And players get that. But, of course, it then comes down to how they cope with it mentally and whether they're prepared to take a decision when they come or whether they get retired by someone above. I suppose what you would say is that because football's a commercial game, generally speaking, someone else calls it for them. You're not as quick as you were. Sorry. That's it. You're finished. Colin Bell said he was told to finish by Malcolm Allison and he would only have accepted it from Malcolm Allison because he regarded Allison as the man who made yeah. him a great player. Yeah. But he never came back from that injury you know, after the Martin Buchan tackle in 75. Yeah. It was 78 before he retired, but he was never the same player. Mm. And of course, he was still only 32, 
and he'd virtually finished at 29. I mean, the ages, now that, as you say, we are all in our 70s, we look back and we say, God, they're 50 years younger than us. They are so young. And yet, you know, with the exception of Gary Lineker and a few others, their productive lives are effectively over at this extraordinary age. And that must be really hard to accept. My great hero, David Gibson, of course, when he finished, he did all sorts of things. I think he took a post office at one point. He ran a retirement home and so on. The last time I met him, his wife told me he'd had to finish as a window cleaner at the age of 82 when he fell off his bladder. And David's still as bright as he ever was. You know, there is an element here, isn't there, of great luck as to the dementia thing. But I also think we don't know the effect of being less occupied. If you're playing football, your mind's occupied with it. You think about it obsessively day in, day out, and then that's gone. Unless you're a manager, it's gone. Mm. Now, does that contribute to getting dementia? The fact that you've fallen off a cliff in terms of your engagement mentally with the job. Yeah, I'm thinking about positive steps towards retirement. And I go back to you know the very brief period, a few weeks I spent in pre-season training with Manchester City in 1971, observing as you could, because nobody cared who you were. You just sat in the corner and watched it all happen. And it was very, very clear to me which players were going to have a successful retirement and which were not. It was the ones who were going off to the snooker who were going to struggle. And Colin Bell had just opened a restaurant with his mate Colin Waldron, so he had a business to go to and something to think about. Summerby was trying desperately to flog everybody shirts and ties, because that was what he made him for years and years and years. So he was in the clothes business, for, so he had something to think about. But the one that stood out for obvious reasons was Francis Lee. Francis yeah. Lee finished training with everybody else at half past 12 and he was off building up his businesses, waste papers and laundrettes. He was responsible, I think, at some point for these central reservations on motorways. He had a plethora of successful businesses and you could see the way he approached his football was, right, at half past 12, I'm stopping that and I'm doing this for the yeah. rest of the day. Yeah. And it made him a better footballer and clearly made him a better retirement. So you can see there is a possibility that even in their playing days, the ones who are likely to make a better retirement than a worse retirement. Paddy, would that be your experience? Very much so. I mean, you, you look at someone now, and I don't know Francis Lee, but someone looks as happy as he was when he was a player because he's always at the matches and he's certainly got a more positive attitude to the new Man City than you do. Yes, well, that's because they're paying him and they're not paying <laughs> yeah, Exactly. But no, that's absolutely true. If you talk about people whose lives went astray, Someone B was George Best's best mate, wasn't he? In fact, George Best was his best man. So you've got a, a whole story there of how their lives went in different directions. To stay on the subject of Manchester, and you touched earlier on what can clubs do for players, and I agree that it would be nice if they did something. But I really don't think a football club has any more of an obligation to look after someone's mental health in retirement than a bank does. And I don't get newspapers banging on my door saying, is there anything we do, do to help you? And I don't expect it. But having said that, self-help is very good. And, and to stay on the subject of Manchester, if you go back to the people of that era, that some of the best Francis Lee era on the other side of Manchester, you find the Association of Former Manchester United Players, which was given very little support by the club, although great support from 
individuals within the club, including Sir Alex Ferguson and David Gill. But they, I'm sure, have that in their calendars and they really look forward to talking about the old days with contemporaries. And these dinners, they still, the last one I went to, the 400 people at it, including a lot of really, really big names. They also have golf days. And this was formed by Alan Wardle, who was a reserve left. You may not have heard of him, but a smashing bloke. And he started this thing, and I'm sure it's been of immense help. It's just a jolly good thing, and I, I think it's very precious and much to the credit of the Manchester United players that they have this. And it is something that, that unfortunately, they fear is eternally dying because players who are not from them or who didn't settle in the Manchester area wouldn't want to keep in touch in the same way as, as English players and Scottish players would. It's not just the players, of course. I produced this one story, which I found terribly sad for reasons that everyone will understand very, very quickly, which is that Malcolm Allison at the end of his life, mm. I mean, was really shambling wreck. I mean, I don't want to be unkind, but I know, because I was told by mm. more than one source, that Francis Lee, he used to wait in reception at the club when Lee was the chairman, hoping for Francis to give him a handout. And yes. Francis always would because of, because of how much that Alison meant. But that's, a, you know, Alison played in the 50s when there was nothing going on. Yep. He had to retire prematurely because he had tuberculosis. Yeah. He became a very successful coach. Someone be told me, he said to Alison, Malcolm, you're the greatest coach in Europe, but you'll never be a manager as long as you've got a hole in your tochus. He didn't use the Yiddish word, but he used another <laughs> one. So this was the Malcolm Allison that I remembered. Yeah. This wonderfully powerful, charismatic, attractive, dynamic man, reduced to something shambling. That's what made it so dramatic, because, as you say, he had presence. If you saw him in the street and you said, what does that guy do for a living? 99 people out of 100 would say, is he a film star? Yes. So to see him reduced to cadging, basically, was obviously more powerful, yeah. There is the earlier example of Tommy Lawton, arguably post-war England's top centre-forward. Yes. Got transferred several times for a lot of money, ended up in the Nottingham area, notorious for having run pubs that went bust, cadging money off people and so on. In the end, he was rescued to a degree by the Nottingham Even Post, who gave him a column. Mm -hmm. And curiously, one of his partners in crime for Notts County, when Notts County played lots of money for players, was a fellow called Jack Saul. Mm -hmm. And I came across Jack Saul, who was a salesman for Bristol Street Motors, flogging people VWs, full of life, and who lived a very happy and contented life. Underlyingly, of course... The personality will come through. Some people can cope with it. Some people can't. And we can't do that much about it, can we? It clearly helps if you've got more money. It clearly helps. Now, they do have a better chance because they can, with reasonable advice, if they can find it, if they can pick it, if they can take good note of it. But mentally, whether they will then be able to cope and go on in a new life is a different matter entirely. For some actors who've had their careers captured on film, you know, when they fall out of favour, particularly ones, ones who are romantic leads, shall we say, mm. they have been known. I mean, you know, go back to Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. There's always the temptation to look at yourself as you were and say, wasn't I marvellous? Or words to that effect. <laughs> now we have got a collection of videos and DVDs and the internet. Footballers can look at their previous existences. 
Is it a helpful thing, or do they become like Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard and just, just disappear into the realms of fantasy? Or you could, like George Weir, go on to become president of the country. Yes. Cricketers, on the whole, have, you know, they've gone on politically. I mean, Imran Khan. Now in prison. Difficult to talk about at the moment. I don't know by the time this goes out, who knows where Imran Khan will be. But there have been those. I mean, C.B. Fry, if we're going back, he was offered the uh, throne of Albania. Allegedly, yes. We haven't had too many of those recently. There have been some attempts by some people to suggest that my client, Gary Lineker, should go into politics. But he doesn't want to go into politics, but that's by the by. So, as ever, there'll be enormous differences. The money will, for those who are going to make it, it will help. For those who are going to have problems, they will still have problems. I will say to people, when they talk about the role of an agent, listen, there are some people you know who are always going to do well. And there are some people you know who are always going to end up in trouble. As the agent... You're speeding the progress of one up and slowing down the inevitable decline. Well, I go back to that first question, John, which was when you first started, the pensions, you know, that you arranged were were completely original. I mean, nobody was doing that. You were the first. Were players prepared to put money away in the sense that that's my money, that's that's the wages I've earned. I won't see it till I'm 65. Yeah, actually, most of them were. Once you explained it to them, my friend Alan Birchinell tells the story that he met me on his first day at Leicester. I don't know, he likes to believe it. I'm not sure it's true. But he went in with his wife and I explained to him about pensions and the way it would work. And he walked out and he said to his missus, this is the future, we're secured and so on. And despite what he says now, he does still get that pension. I get occasional calls from players who were at Leicester during that period and doing all manner of jobs now, policemen. There's a policeman who rings me from time to time and said, you know what, I still get that pension check every month and it's very good, it moves it away. Others of them use all the money up straight away when they're retired to cover whatever debts they'd accumulated on gambling or whatever. People are people. Well, it's kind of comforting in a funny way in that it is up to you, in inverted commas, to, to sort yourself out. It can be done if you're sensible. You don't have to be a genius or past 11 plus to realise that, you know, you need to make provision for the time when you will not be playing. That's why I was so surprised when these players who are terribly clever with the ball at their feet couldn't see that, you know, in five years' time, they wouldn't be doing this. They'd have to be doing something else. They'd still only be 33 years old and they needed to make some kind of provision for their future. I have to say, I agree with you. There's no reason why clubs should mollycoddle all the way through the rest of their lives, having left their employ. No other form of employer does that. But it is up to the players who, when they do earn good money, can make their future much more secure than the insecure profession in which they are actually involved at the moment. I'll disagree with you but Most big companies have HR departments who do cope and are there to help people. Yeah, while they're being employed, but are they there 20 years after they've gone? Well, help direct them towards the sort of people who can help them going on. Let's put it like that. The football clubs, they didn't used to bother at all. No, but they've now all got agents who are presumably interested in their financial welfare. Well, when you said they've got agents who are interested in their financial welfare, do you mean the agent or the player? Yes. (laughs) No, but clearly your clients have been helped by their agent. I mean, 
your cooperation with the likes of Lineker and Chilton has gone on decades after their playing. Didn't do much good in Chilton's case, did it? I may have slowed it down. I was just going um, to say that some clients are easier than others. That's the nature of us as yeah. human beings. Well, of course, we remember that Bill Shankly, you know, it's not just the clubs and the uncaring, insensitive directors. Notoriously, everybody knows these stories that when a player was injured, yeah. Shankly would ignore them. You're no good to me. You can't play on Saturday. I'm not talking to you. Yeah, Clough similar. Was he? And nobody would suggest that Shankly was an insensitive man or a man who didn't care about his players. He cared about them greatly, but you yeah. have to put it into context. And also, I think we are a more compassionate society in some way. I know... We're always tempted to say things aren't as good as they used to be, but we are an infinitely more compassionate society. If you know your history of the Manchester United air crash and the players who after that never played again, such as Blanche Flower, the other Blanche Flower's brother, and... Um, Johnny Berry. Johnny Berry, sorry. I was about to say mm. Albert Scanlon, but Albert Scanlon did actually play did on play. for Newcastle. Mm. But those two... They got hardly anything from Manchester United, who were an impoverished club at that time. Did they not put on a testimonial? Because, I mean, that's the obvious way to raise money. And the crowds would have poured in for Johnny Berry and Jack Blanchard. No, they didn't. And anybody else? There was one, but very little money was raised. I'm surprised. Although one was held much, much later. I mean, much later, because Eric Canton, I was sort of involved in it. So it's a hideous story, that one. You know, at one stage, Johnny Berry was lugging... Was it Johnny Berry or one of the players? It might even have been Scanlon during his recovery. Was sort of lugging sacks in one of Louis Edwards's companies in Trafford Park Estate, and probably Louis Edwards thought that he was actually helping, you know, doing his best. I want to end with a story that always upset me, frankly. One of my books called George Best and Twenty One Others was yes. about the Manchester City and United youth teams of 1964 yes. and following all the players and, and what happened to them. One of them at the outside left was called David Connor, who became during City's golden years under Allison and Mercer. He became the super sub. He used yeah. to come on and mark people. They tried to get rid of him and Neil Young at the same time, which was 71-72. Ah, my hero, Neil Young. They I know, never... exactly, but they got rid of them. That's disgraceful. Uh, this, was, you know, this was Alison. And one of Alison's things that, that he said, or certainly that the club said under when Alison was manager, to both players was, if you go now, we will arrange next year, we will give you a testimonial, and you'll make a lot of money from that, and you'll be, you'll be covered for an hour. So they said yes. And then the next year, Alison had gone. Peter Swales had taken over the club. And when Connor went back and said, what about my testimony you promised me? He said, get out of here. And it never happened. And he tried to, he wrote letters, he had employed lawyers. They had made a solemn promise, whether it was in writing or not, I don't know. But there was no intention of the club to offer it. And I saw him when he was, what, in his late 60s with two hip replacements that he'd given in, in the cause of the service to football clubs. And he felt really badly that the club had broken its word and hadn't ever given him the testimonial it promised. I dare say that is not a unique story. No, promises were broken all over the place, as we know. And of course, with testimonials, you couldn't promise it or put it in writing, because that way it then became taxable. It became a contractual payment. So that was one of those things that... But cricketers have benefits which were not taxable. They were written down. It's surely. completely different. You see, testimonials and, and benefits, as they were, were gifts and so on. The revenue challenged it on a number of occasions, but you had to go through hoops in order to make sure that the player was always insulated from that point of view, from an attack by the taxman, because the taxman said, 
this is income arising out of employment. Therefore, you have to say no, it wasn't because they had to have a testimonial committee that was not comprised of directors or people involved with the club. They had to write to the club to request permission to play on the ground or organise a game. It was quite a legal and taxation minefield. I did one or two testimonials for players, so I did know all about that. There was one occasion where I remember John Robertson had been promised a testimonial. Then they were trying to say, you can't have the money. And I said, why can't you have the money? And they said, oh, well, it's all in the trust and it can't be broken. And I said, well, who are the trustees? And they said, the Sheriff of Nottingham. At which point I said, well, I'm Robin Hood. <laughs> well, that was a bloody great feed line, that was. Yeah. True story, true story. The guy who was running that testimony and later went to jail, but there you are. He's rubbed shoulders with them all, this John Holmes. From the highest to the lowest. <laughs> it's true. He may well be the lowest. <laughs> but is. nevertheless, he has, as has Paddy, contributed to another really interesting discussion. We've been talking about retirement retirement, which is ironic because we're all in our 70s and have no intention of doing anything remotely resembling retiring until they take it all away from us. But thank you to John and thank you to Paddy and thank you as ever to our indefatigable producer, Paul Kovrak. We've enjoyed talking about retirement. We'll talk about something more enlightening and youthful next time, I'm quite sure. So if you want to let us know whether you've been deeply depressed or rather moved by what we've been saying today, please write to us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. We do read your letters. We do take notice of them. We don't laugh at them. And we'll be very pleased to receive them. So until next time, this is Colin Schindler saying... Thank you for listening. See you all next time on Football Ruin My Life. Listen, some of the people who write in are meant to make us laugh. I think that's a bit unfair. I meant don't dismiss them with cackles of derisive laughter is what I meant. To be quite honest, I don't think any of them thought that in the first place until you said it. <laughs> well, they do now, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> we appreciate and enjoy them is the answer. I'll use that next time. Much better phrase. Apparently the audience love it. I've had emails from both of them. Sports Social Podcast Network.